Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to stories of your and yours, soon to be known as Ink and Ash. My name is Sean Ennis, and with today being Veterans Day here in the U.S., I've got a story about a veteran, aptly named The Veteran. We are fresh out of reviews to read for this week, so if you haven't reviewed the show yet, the cue to have your review read here on the show is currently empty. This will be a pretty brief episode today, but before I get into it, today's show is brought to you by the generous patrons of Stories of Your and Yours. That's Nick, Vanessa, Julio, Dan, Moxie, Kayla, Ken, Alan, Rob, and Nate. And there's still plenty of room over at patreon.com slash syypodcast, so if you want to join the elite patrons and help offset the costs of putting together an independent podcast, head on over and join up. Today's story comes to us from Stephen Crane. Stephen Crane was an American author who was born in Newark, New Jersey in November of 1871. He was the ninth surviving child in his family, and it's said that he began writing at the age of four. Like many of the authors that we profile here, he was published early in life, having published several articles by the age of 16. He was not enrolled in school regularly as a child and was not enrolled in school at all until the age of nine, when he completed his first two grade levels in six weeks. It was at this same age that Crane's father died at the age of 60. Crane and his family would soon become well acquainted with tragedy as they would lose four more family members to illness or accident over the next six years. After his father's death, Stephen bounced around between his adult siblings and lived with a few of them for months or years at a time. Crane was not a great overall student, but he excelled in history and literature, as could be expected. But regardless of his academic successes or failures, he had little interest in higher education, and he left Syracuse University at the age of 20 to work as a reporter and a writer. In fact, Syracuse was the third college that Crane attended, having first been a student at Claverack College, a quasi-military academy in New York, where he planned on pursuing a military career, and then at Lafayette College in Easton, PA, after his family persuaded him to pursue a mining engineering degree. After leaving college, Crane struggled working as a freelance reporter and writer. He published his first novel, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, in 1893. He published it privately, using money that he had inherited from his mother, and the novel did not sell. It was based on Crane's experiences in New York City slums. In fact, much of his fiction is based on his experiences or the experiences of the people with whom he associated. This is also true of Crane's best-known work, The Red Badge of Courage, which is an American Civil War novel that relied, in part, on anecdotes that Crane heard from the Civil War veterans on the staff at Claverack College. He decided to write The Red Badge of Courage after reading a series of Civil War accounts in the Century magazine. He found the accounts to be rather cold, saying, I wonder that some of those fellows don't tell how they felt in those scraps. They spout enough of what they did, but they're as emotionless as rocks. This mindset speaks to the realism in Crane's writing. Now, I am hardly a literary scholar. I'm just a guy who likes stories. So I try not to label writing styles unless the research materials are pretty clear as to what a particular writer's style is, in no small part because I don't know what all those styles mean. So, I'm not going to label Stephen Crane as a realist, especially since I saw no fewer than 16 other styles attributed to him. The Red Badge of Courage was an instant success, and is remembered today as a classic. Crane parlayed that success into an assignment from McClure's magazine to visit several Civil War battlefields and write stories about them. Today's story, The Veteran, is one of those. That all said, let's wrap up Mr. Crane's background. There is quite a bit more I could say about his history, but we're going to keep this brief as we usually try to do. 
Crane met his eventual wife, Cora, when he arrived in Jacksonville, Florida, ahead of a trip he was taking to Cuba to work as a war correspondent covering the Spanish-American War. But on the way to Cuba, his ship, the Commodore, sank, leaving Crane and three other men stranded off the coast of Florida in a lifeboat. He wrote about this experience in another short story, The Open Boat, which is probably his most well-known short story. In fact, I had planned on doing The Open Boat during season one, but for some reason I could not get a narration that I was happy with, so I still haven't done it. But it's a great story, so I do plan on doing it. Someday. After his ordeal off the coast of Florida, Crane took two more assignments as a war correspondent for the Greco-Turkish War, for which his wife Cora accompanied him, and the Spanish-American War, for which he finally did make his way back to Cuba while Cora stayed in England, where they had settled after covering the Greco-Turkish War. But his health started to fail at this point, and he was diagnosed with both yellow fever and malaria at different times while covering the Spanish-American War in Cuba. In addition to health problems, the Cranes were basically penniless at this point, despite the feverish pace at which Stephen was producing stories. Nothing that Crane had written since the Red Badge of Courage had sold well, and the Cranes got to the point where they couldn't pay the rent. They did start to recover a bit towards the end of 1899, when Crane decided to start writing for the English magazines rather than American ones, but he had already suffered one pulmonary hemorrhage in December of 1899, and he died in June of 1900 of tuberculosis at the young age of just 28 years old. This week's story, The Veteran, was published, as mentioned before, in McClure's magazine in 1896, just a year after The Red Badge of Courage. The story is actually a sequel to that novel, though it stands just fine on its own, in case you're not familiar with The Red Badge of Courage. If you want to hear the background on McClure's magazine, you can check out the episode that features Robert Barr's The Hour and the Man, which I will link to in the show notes. And now that you know a little bit more about the history of Stephen Crane and the veteran, let's get right into today's feature presentation. The Veteran by Stephen Crane Out of the low window could be seen three hickory trees placed irregularly in a meadow that was resplendent in springtime green. Farther away, the old, dismal belfry of the village church loomed over the pines. A horse, meditating in the shade of one of the hickories, lazily swished its tail. The warm sunshine made an oblong of vivid yellow on the floor of the grocery. "'Could you see the whites of their eyes?' said the man, who was seated on a soapbox. "'Nothing of the kind,' replied old Henry warmly. "'Just a lot of flitting figures uh, let go where they appeared to be the thickest. Bang!' <laughs> "'Mr. Fleming,' said the grocer. His deferential voice expressed somehow the old man's exact social weight. Uh, "'Mr. Fleming, you never was frightened much in them battles, was ye?' The veteran looked down and grinned. Observing his manner, the entire group tittered. <laughs> "'Well, I guess I was,' he answered finally. "'Pretty well scared sometimes. Why, in my first battle, I thought the sky was falling down. I thought the world was coming to an end.' You bet I was scared. Everyone laughed. Perhaps it seemed strange and rather wonderful to them that a man should admit the thing. And in the tone of their laughter there was probably more admiration than if old Fleming had declared that he had always been a lion. Moreover, they knew that he had ranked as an orderly sergeant, and so their opinion of his heroism was fixed. None, to be sure, knew how an orderly sergeant ranked, but then it was understood to be somewhere just shy of a major general star's. So when old Henry admitted that he had been frightened, there was a laugh. The trouble was, said the old man, 
I thought they were all shooting at me. Yes, sir, I thought every man in the other army was aiming at me in particular, and only me. And it seemed so darn unreasonable, you know. I, I wanted to explain to them what an almighty good fellow I was, because I thought then they might quit trying to hit me. Uh, but I couldn't explain, and they kept on being unreasonable. Blam, blam, bang. <laughs> so I run. Two little triangles of wrinkles appeared at the corners of his eyes. Evidently, he appreciated some comedy in this recital. Down near his feet, however, little Jim, his grandson, was visibly horror-stricken. His hands were clasped nervously, and his eyes were wide with astonishment at the terrible scandal, his most magnificent grandfather telling such a thing. That was a Chancellorsville. Of course, afterwards, I got kind of used to it. A man does. Lots of men, though, seem to feel all right from the start. I did as soon as I got on to it, as they say now, but at first I was pretty well flustered. Now, there was young Jim Conklin, old Sire Conklin's son, that used to keep the tannery. Uh, you, none of you recollect him. Well, he went into it from the start, just as if he was born to it. But with me, it was different. I had to get used to it. When little Jim walked with his grandfather, he was in the habit of skipping along in the stone pavement in front of the three stores in the hotel of the town, and betting that he could avoid the cracks. But upon this day, he walked soberly, and with his hand gripping two of his grandfather's fingers. Sometimes he kicked abstractedly at dandelions that curved over the walk. Anyone could see that he was much troubled. "'There's Sickles' colt over there in the meadow, Jimmy,' said the old man. "'Don't you wish you owned one like him?' "'Um,' said the boy with a strange lack of interest. He continued his reflections, then finally he ventured, "'Grandpa, now, was that true, what you was telling those men?' "'What?' asked the grandfather. "'What was I telling them?' Oh, uh, about your running. Uh, why, yes, that was true enough, Jimmy. It was my first fight, and there was an awful lot of noise, you know. Jimmy seemed dazed that his idol of his own will should so totter. His stout, boyish idealism was injured. Presently, the grandfather said, uh, Sickles' colt is going for a drink. Don't you wish you owned Sickles' colt, Jimmy? The boy merely answered, He ain't as nice as iron. He lapsed then into another moody silence. One of the hired men, a Swede, desired to drive to the country seat for purposes of his own. The old man loaned a horse and an unwashed buggy. It appeared later that one of the purposes of the Swede was to get drunk. After quelling some boisterous frolic of the farmhands and the boys in the garret, the old man had that night gone peacefully to sleep when he was aroused by clamoring at the kitchen door. He grabbed his trousers and they waved out behind as he dashed forward. He could hear the voice of the Swede screaming and blubbering. He pushed the wooden button, and as the door flew open, a Swede, a maniac, stumbled inward, chattering, weeping, still screaming, De barn fire! De barn fire! 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 There was a swift and indescribable change in the old man. His face ceased instantly to be a face. It became a mask, a gray thing, with horror written about the mouth and the eyes. He hoarsely shouted at the foot of the little rickety stairs, and immediately, it seemed, there came down an avalanche of men. No one knew that during this time the old lady had been standing in her nightclothes at the bedroom door yelling, What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? When they dashed towards the barn, it presented to their eyes its usual appearance, solemn, rather mystic in the black night. The Swede's lantern was overturned at a point some yards in front of the barn doors. It contained a wild little conflagration of its own, and even in their excitement, some of those who ran felt a gentle, secondary vibration of the thrifty part of their minds at the sight of this overturned lantern. 
Under ordinary circumstances, it would have been a calamity. But the cattle in the barn were trampling, 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 and above this noise could be heard the humming like the song of innumerable bees. The old man hurled aside the great doors and a yellow flame leaped out at one corner and sped and wavered frantically up the old gray wall. It was glad, terrible, this single flame, like the wild banner of deadly and triumphant foes. The motley crowd from the garret had come with all the pails of the farm. They flung themselves upon the well. It was a leisurely old machine, long dwelling in indolence. It was in the habit of giving out water with a sort of reluctance. The men stormed at it, cursed it, but it continued to allow the buckets to be filled only after the wheezy windlass had howled many protests at the mad-handed men. With his opened knife in his hand, old Fleming himself had gone headlong into the barn, where the stifling smoke swirled with the air currents, and where it could be heard in its fullness the terrible chorus of the flames laden with tones of hate and death, a hymn of wonderful ferocity. He flung a blanket over the old mare's head, cut the halter close to the manger, led the mare to the door, and fairly kicked her out to safety. He returned with the same blanket and rescued one of the workhorses. He took five horses out and then came out himself with his clothes bravely on fire. He had no whiskers and very little hair on his head. They soused five pailfuls of water over him. His eldest son made a clean miss with a six pailful because the old man had turned and was running down the decline and around the basement of the barn where were the stanchions of the cows. Someone noticed at the time that he ran very lamely as if one of the frenzied horses had smashed his hip. The cows, with their heads held in the heavy stanchions, had thrown themselves, strangled themselves, tangled themselves, done everything which the ingenuity of their exuberant fear could suggest to them. Here, as at the well, the same thing happened to every man save one. Their hands went mad. They became incapable of everything, save the power to rush into dangerous situations. The old man released the cow nearest the door, and she, blind drunk with terror, crashed into the Swede. The Swede had been running to and fro, babbling. He carried an empty milk pail to which he clung with an unconscious, fierce enthusiasm. He shrieked like one lost as he went under the cow's hoofs, and the milk pail, rolling across the floor, made a flash of silver in the gloom. Old Fleming took a fork beat off the cow and dragged the paralyzed Swede to the open air. When they had rescued all the cows save one which had so fastened herself that she could not be moved an inch, they returned to the front of the barn and stood sadly, breathing like men who had reached the final point of human effort. Many people had come running. Someone had even gone to the church, and now, from the distance, rang the toxin note of the old bell. There was a long flare of crimson on the sky, which made remote people speculate as to the whereabouts of the fire. The long flames sang their drumming chorus in voices of the heaviest bass. The wind whirled clouds of smoke and cinders into the faces of the spectators. The form of the old barn was outlined in black amid the masses of orange-hued flames. And then came this Swede again, crying as one who is the weapon of the sinister fates. De Colts! De Colts! You have forgot De Colts! Old Fleming staggered. It was true. They had forgotten the two Colts in the box stalls at the back of the barn. Boys, he said, I must try to get him out. They clamored about him then, afraid for him, afraid of what they should see. Then they talked wildly, each to each. Why, it's sure death. He would never get out. It's suicide for a man to go back in there. Old Fleming stared absent-mindedly at the open doors. Poor little things, he said. He rushed into the barn. When the roof fell in, a great funnel of smoke swarmed toward the sky, as if the old man's mighty spirit, released from its body, a little bottle, had swelled like the genie of fable.
The smoke was tinted rose hue from the flames, and perhaps the unutterable midnights of the universe will have no power to daunt the color of this soul. Happy Veterans Day, and thank you for your service to all those who have served. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week, I'll be posting another Civil War story over on Patreon under the Simply Stories banner. This one by noted Civil War author and veteran and a favorite of this here show, Ambrose Bierce. You won't want to miss that one. And back here on the main feed in two weeks, you'll be hearing a story just right for Thanksgiving. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours, soon to be known as Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com.